Today, folks, I am very pleased to bring uh, Dr. George Lamplew, who is a lifelong Georgia historian and has written several books. And I want to hear more about some of the the ways that you've been able to share your information and knowledge before we leave, Dr. Lamplew. But, you know, we've discussed before that the, the Yazoo land fraud is such a complicated thing. I mean, it was so complicated at the time, it took months and months for the governments to try to work this out. So if you could, let's just get started with with yeah. how this idea, I mean, we all know that land is the thing that people want, and that always brings out opportunism and greed and things like that. So so how did this happen in Georgia? I mean, did, did we have that much surplus land that we could start getting involved with? Well, first of all, you got to understand that the colonial charter basically said Georgia ran at least as far as the Mississippi. And there were some people who thought it went even farther. But so just think the Mississippi, right? Well, that's the colonial period. Then we got a little thing called the revolution and we're not a colony anymore. So then the question becomes, well, okay, Georgia is now an independent state of a, a new nation and they've got all this land and they got two choices. They can either defend it against Indians, Spaniards, whoever, and they were too poor and too weak as a state to do that at the time, or they could try to sell it. Now, they tried to sell it in the 1780s a couple of times, including one sale that was actually called the Yazoo sale. They, they were trying to give it away to Congress. Congress said, no, nah, we don't want it. <laughs> uh, and so eventually they tried to sell it to this group of land companies. And, and of course, they were speculators. They wanted to buy it up and sell it, and like flip it in modern terms. And right. Make a lot of money. <laughs> so it didn't work. The first Yazoo sale, which I think was 1789, it failed miserably, but mainly because the speculators, here again, we go back to why they're in business, to make money. They tried to pay for that land using revolutionary era money from Georgia that really wasn't worth the paper it was printed on. And the Georgians knew that, and they said, no thanks, if you can't pay hard currency or whatever, <laughs> we're not going to do it. And so that was in 89, and then, but, but then the, the speculative spirit in Georgia and the need for money were both very strong. And so almost you'd almost say inevitably, within about five years, six years, this speculative fever had crested again. At this time, the legislature was more willing to listen. And so that was the, the Yazoo sale, 1795. The problem here was that you had four companies, all of whom were in the business of making money and selling the land. And that land, by the way, I should mention this. If you think Georgia, and then you think, if you can, the Mississippi, well, between the western boundary of Georgia and the Mississippi, there are two states right. called Alabama and Mississippi. And those are essentially what were the Yazoo lands. That's what we mean. There's a river, I think it's in Mississippi, and it's called the Yazoo, and somehow that title got stuck. So it's there, but it's it's unsettled and all the rest of it. Well, except for Native Americans, and we don't worry about them. Sure. Uh, <laughs> you know, no. But anyway, so... That's the way it was uh, at the time of the Yazoo sale. And these four companies came. They were led by a Federalist, a Georgia's first United States senator, a guy called James Gunn. That's with two N's. And Gunn was a, 
a man on the make. Uh, he had he was a Virginian by birth. He had been in the Revolution in Georgia fighting with the Continental Army cavalry unit, I think. And he liked what he saw. And when the war was over, we'd won. We were now a state. We had a new country. Gunn decided to try to make his fortune in Georgia. And ultimately, it really succeeded. He was he was the, the first of our two initial United States senators to be elected. And he was a federalist. Now, that again, there's a lot of detail here. Let me, let me try to simplify it. Right. Eventually, in, in the early 90s, early to mid-90s, the first administration of George Washington, everybody started out liking George because he was the father of the country. But within a couple of years, Alexander Hamilton, who was like his, his uh, man behind the curtain, he was the guy who had all the ideas, and he just had to get him past Washington. And if Washington accepted them, then they could be put into effect through Congress. And Washington and Hamilton's ideas were of a, essentially a large, powerful government that had lots of authority over lots of things. Well, Washington's first uh, Secretary of State was a Virginian author of the Declaration of Independence named Thomas Jefferson. And his and his buddy James Madison's view of what a government should be in this new nation was quite different from Hamilton's and Washington. They were more into the weak central government, strong state government thing. So there was a split. So you had two different visions of government going on here. And Gunn, James Gunn, going back to him, the Georgia senator, he was the leading speculator in a bunch of these land sharks out there. And I mean, it's, I'm not trying to cast aspersions on them because <laughs> land was, land was uh, essentially currency right. in those years. And people were eager to get it and they were eager, eager to sell it. And Gunn essentially headed up a conglomerate of a bunch of eager speculators with lots of money. Not and colonial it, money. No, no, no. This is the <laughs> real, money. The real yeah. stuff. Yeah. There were four different companies. We don't need to worry about the names of them. But Gunn and his Georgia company were the main ones because he was a Georgia senator. He had all kinds of influence among people in Georgia. He could practically sell anything he wanted to within reason to right. the state legislature. And, and so the legislature, with a little encouragement from Gunn and some other guys passing out money and shares of land in the, in the cloakrooms, they got it and they put it in the form of an act. It was, everybody knows it as the Yazoo Act. That was not what its name was, but it doesn't matter. So the Yazoo Act was passed, it was signed by the governor. And then all the speculators, they got together, they had all these shares printed up and stuff like that. They started passing them out. They're already taking care of the legislature. Okay. Right. They all had their money or their land shares. They divided the shares into what were called subshares. And those they passed out mainly to influential people, mainly who lived up country, not along the coast, because it was up country where the land hunger was really strong. And so they would pass them out to militia leaders, to newspaper editors, to local public officials, justices of the peace, whoever. And what they were trying to do was they were trying to ensure, using Hamiltonian methods now, remember, Gunn is a federalist. Right. Hamilton was a great believer in cultivating the self-interest of people to, to get them to support his view. And Gunn kind of, in a, 
kind of a little bit of a sleazy way because he was interested in money more than ideology, I think. But, you know, he wanted to use the same theory or principles, I guess you could say, to get this, not just they've already gotten the sale through. What they had to do next was they had to make sure that there wouldn't be a lot of pushback from people in Georgia and from others about this sale. And the best way to ensure that, he thought, was to pass out all kinds of goodies to influential people in the upcountry who would then support the sale, sell it to the militia men in the ranks. Okay, the colonel would sell it to the privates and sergeants and lieutenants, and the justices of peace would would talk about it in court. All the newspaper editors would write editorials. Right, right. What a great thing. So, well, let, let me ask. Oh, just a quick clarifying point. So. So these shares you're talking about, mm-hmm. they're obviously pieces of paper that say that you own, right. own something. Are these shares in the company, or are they actually quasi-land deeds? They are. You buy the shares from the company. There were four companies. It didn't matter. I mean, you know, right. which ones. But you bought your shares or subshares, whichever. And then those somehow, and I don't know the mechanism here, were converted into individual land Deeds and things like that. Right. But you did have to, money had to change hands right. for that to happen. And just as a side note here, among the groups that were rewarded by the speculators were the various county surveyors. Mm-hmm. 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 So that they would do <laughs> they would draw the lines for the, you know, the lots and all that. Right. And you're you gonna know. want this piece over here because I've been out there and seen it. Trust me. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, or it's right. It, there's a great source of water on this puppy. That's why we're charging you twice what your neighbor was asked to pay because he's over there where it's there's not much water. Right. So you know they they had all that kind of stuff, and of course, seriously, some of the land was much better quality, but this land, and if you think about Alabama, Mississippi, going to be the black belt in the 19th century, right? With all right. the fertile land and this home slavery, and, and Georgia too, of course. That was really good land, and so there was a, quite a market for it. So we've got people, they have these companies that have distributed these shares at no cost in a, in a way to get buy-in from people. You know, that sounds, it sounds nefarious, yes. but, it, but it doesn't sound like the sort of thing that's, that's going to bring the entire land speculation business and the legislature of Georgia to its knees. How does it go from something nefarious <laughs> to something that reaches state and national proportions of crisis? Well, I can answer that in two words. James Jackson. (laughs) He was the other senator from Georgia. He was the junior senator from Georgia. And he and Gunn didn't agree on whether the sky was blue when it came to, you know, politics. They didn't. And uh, Jackson was in the Capitol when the sale was going on, but he had people down in Georgia who were sending him these letters and talking about all the corruption that was involved, all the money and land that was being passed out to people. And you got to remember that this was an era for Jackson and, and John Millage and all these other guys that were supporting him. This was an era of republicanism with either a small or a capital R, it doesn't matter. But basically what it meant was you followed the philosophy of Thomas Jefferson. And this and right in the middle of that philosophy was, well, you have to do what's good for the people, by which Jefferson always meant farmers. So what we're seeing here is 
that all the sleaze that goes on with the passing of the law and the whole system to, to go from this is these laws are being passed, you now have this paper, what happens next? All of that involved kickbacks and stuff like that. And so Jackson heard this from his contacts because we don't have political parties in Georgia yet, really. They're, they're sort of personal factions. You've got, you've got Jackson, who's kind of a Jeffersonian before Jefferson was, and you've got uh, James Gunn, who's a federalist because it's in his interest to be. And, and I'll give him credit. He probably did like Washington. Everybody did. Sure. You know, <laughs> at least up until 1793 or, or so. And so maybe it was just that, but he really did have this drive, this lust almost for money and influence in Georgia. And the Yazoo sale was a great way to do that. What he wasn't able to do, as it turned out, was to build much of a Federalist Party in Georgia when parties did come in. The Federalists were the party of Washington and Hamilton. The Republicans or Jeffersonian Republicans were the party of Jefferson and James Madison and all their followers in Georgia, including James Jackson. So you had these two parties. Now, that doesn't become real obvious till about 1796, which is, wait for it, the year <laughs> after the Yazoo land fraud. And so, and there are so many angry editorials. There are public demonstrations organized usually by James Jackson's buddies to get out there and rile people up and make them see the evil and the corruption involved in the Yazoo sale and get them in the streets and, you know, marching around, singing nasty songs and serenading the judges who supported the sale under the windows of their rooming houses when they were on circuit, all that stuff. So what to simplify it, what ends up happening is that you get a situation where there's been this resentment of the Yazoo people and all it took to get their thing done and how little it seemed to the anti-Yazoo folks, how little they really cared about your average small farmer. They were trying to right. sell these land to, to wealthy speculators. God knows what they were going to do with it. And if they sold it, it would probably be a lot more expensive. That, than, than an average farmer couldn't afford. Yeah, than an average farmer could, could afford. So ultimately what happens is Jackson comes back. He resigns his seat in the Senate. This is really a bad sign for Gunn. And he comes back to Georgia. And he basically takes over the political operation of the state. I'm really simple, oversimplifying. Right. <laughs> but basically, he used, he roused up a bunch of people. He organized what we would say, what I would say was a political faction rather than a party, because it was a, a small group of people who were very energetic and had lots of contacts. And they pretty much agreed with Jackson. And he wrote a, he wrote a pamphlet, which becomes the Bible for the anti-Yazoo folks. Basically, it explains in Jackson's overheated prose how evil this thing was and how they really needed to get rid of it. And from that pamphlet and with all those contacts and friends in this faction, he they basically ousted everybody in the legislature who had voted for Yazoo. I mean, legally, they did it the next election. Right, it wasn't right. Violent. It's not a coup. They, no, no, not a coup. <laughs> Well, it was an elected coup. Well, yes. Yeah, you could say that. Anyway, it was nice and legal. Nice and legal, right. <laughs> and so there they were. They had taken it over. And you know what's coming next, right? There's an investigation, and we know how legislative and congressional investigations mm -hmm. go. 
all the seamy stuff comes out and gets publicized by the people making the investigation and the people being investigated, they're all ticked off and they write editorials and send letters and write pamphlets saying, oh, we're innocent as the driven snow. <laughs> so you had that, that going on, but it didn't matter because Jackson controlled the legislature. And so he writes a bill. He wrote a bill with his pen, which ended up being called the Rescinding Act in 1796. That was a year after the Yazoo sale. And that nullified the sale as far as Georgia and Jackson was concerned. They burned the act publicly. But anyway, besides that, they destroyed all the records of the sale. This was not going to, it wasn't going to be easy for the people who speculated and tried to make money. It wasn't going to be easy for them to get anything because all the records that proved they were owed money were gone. And so this is one of the reasons why for the next 18 years, there's going to be stuff going on in Georgia and in the Capitol and in the newspapers all over the country about the sleaze of the Yazoo sale. That's Jackson's view. And the and John Marshall would actually sign off on this in Fletcher versus Peck in 1810. The argument of the Federalists and people who, like Marshall, believe very strongly in protecting the right of contract, which is in the Constitution. Marshall believed or said he believed, and he controlled the court in those days. There wasn't a whole lot of splits, you know, five, four or whatever. Right. Was Marshall twisting arms and getting what he wanted. And usually what he wanted was pretty helpful in the long run, maybe not at the time. So what they ended up doing uh, in a case called Fletcher versus Peck, uh, which went all the way to the Supreme Court, the court ruled that, well, yeah, there certainly was corruption involved in the sale. But you know what? The legislature had the right to sell that land. And if they decided they could sell it with corruption, sorry, it's still a contract. When that law was passed and the governor signed off on it, that, in Marshall's view, constituted a contract. Mm -hmm. And what the rescinding act had done was to tear up that contract. They had because they had taken, you know, they burned the document. They said, we're not going to, you're not going to get any money off of this. And Marshall, so Marshall says in 1810, oh yeah, they should. But see, he couldn't order Georgia to do this. This The court didn't have nearly as much prestige in the 1790s as it would get later. And so all he could do was hand down this decision and then leave it to uh, the fates, otherwise known as Congress, Right. And the speculators and James Jackson's angry friends to hash through it and try to make some sense of it. And that took a long time. It took until 1814 with lots of distractions in the middle. But one thing that's important to keep in mind and is that Jackson was a Jeffersonian. He wasn't a Federalist. The Federalists controlled the federal government till 1800. Mm-hmm. Okay. The Yazoo sale member and and the rescinding act were 1795, 1796. So Jackson, all he could do in Georgia was to prevent people like Gunn and other Federalists, other Yazooists, trying to transfer this case to Congress. Because if they'd done it before 1800, Congress would have been dominated by Federalists and would have been probably supportive of Yazoo 
or at least to the idea of land speculation. But Jackson and the guys just kept them at bay for the next four years. And then, of course, Jefferson was elected, mm-hmm. and he was the leader of the pack as far as Jackson was concerned. And he also sympathized with Jackson's anti-Yazoo stance. So what happened was Jefferson becomes president officially in 1801. Within a year, a committee, including Madison and some other leading Republican whites, supporters of Jefferson, they had met with Georgia, which was controlled again by Jackson here at this time. And they worked out a deal, and which was called the Compact of 1802. And it's very important. Uh-huh. or its provisions. There are, two, there are two main provisions, and both of them were key. One was the obvious one, that Georgia was no longer going to control the Azu lands. They transferred them to the national government, which promptly divided them, in, well, created Mississippi territory, and eventually, of course, met the states of Alabama and Mississippi. But so they did that. They got rid of that problem. They said it's it's up to Jefferson now. And of course, he he is anti-Yazoo, just like Jackson. So they're not too worried. But the other thing about the compact that you need to get, and this, my gosh, Georgia history, American history would have been so different if this wasn't in there. It was an exchange that paid him some money. I think it was $5 million or something for the land. But in addition, they promised to remove the Native Americans from Georgia when it could be done peaceably and on reasonable terms. Now, that's those are citations, direct word-for-word citations from the so-called compact. So the government had promised that in return for you know having Georgia cede the land for $5 million to, to the national government, they would reward them in addition by getting the Native Americans out. But it w- there was no time limit on it. That was the point. There was no time limit. They said right. it had to be peaceful. Yeah, it had to be reasonable. And so that sets the stage for roughly 36 years of conflict between Georgia and the federal government as to how fast this process is going to go. And it really didn't go very fast at all to begin with. So that's gonna. that's why this whole I mean, the Trail of Tears and before that, what was done to the creeks, all of that Mm -hmm. came in response to the Compact of 1802. But the creeks didn't get kicked out completely. I think the last treaty was 1827. Uh, So that's 25 years. And of course, the Trail of Tears was in 1838. And the treaty that got them out was the Treaty of New Echota. Mm -hmm. And that was in 1835. So 1802 is the compact, the promise that we'll do this. 1827-28 is when the first tribe, the Creeks, are finally out. And then seven years later is the Treaty of New Echota, and three years after that is the Trail of Tears. So that compact is frequently overlooked, and it shouldn't be. I, yeah, I totally agree. And, you know, when we talk about removal here, I always take it back to that because, you know, I'm sure there were people in Georgia in 1803 that started tapping the federal government on the shoulder saying, how about now? How about now? That's right. And it keeps driving everything until 
Andrew Jackson gets into office, and that's why Georgia loves Andrew Jackson because there they see someone who's finally going to make it all happen. I'm, I'm I'm so glad you know this this has been great because you've tied you know early Georgia politics, all that land that's out there, directly to not just land speculation, but eventual Indian removal. It's not one of Georgia's finer salaries, I have to say, but I can certainly understand. I mean, you know you. That's the thing about this whole period that, and I've spent almost half a century now researching and writing about it, talking about it, that it isn't necessary when you're studying the past, it isn't necessary to like people or to understand or, or, you know, to kind of emphasize all the negative stuff. What you got to do is try to understand where they were coming from. And if you can do that, then at least you can still describe what they did, but you can also say, now, this is why they did it. We don't have to like it, but this was, you know, their mindset. And the same thing, of course, which modern people who like to look back and criticize historical figures and events and so on, they don't quite see that they're in that same position now. Modern people are in the same position now, and some historians are going to come along later, journalists, you know, all that and right. criticize us for doing X, Y, or Z. You know, you've done a, a great job. Tell us what those two books are and then tell us a little bit. I, I know you've got a blog too. Share that. Uh, with I us. do. Yes. I retired in June of 2010. I started this blog and it's been going on ever since. It's now in its 12th year. And wow. A couple hundred posts in there and they're pretty substantial essays. They usually run around 2000 words and there's a big section of them. It's not the only thing there. There's a big section of them called Dead Georgians. And that's a list. It's, again, it's a lot of uh, biographical stuff and a lot of the Georgia history stuff is there. And there's some other stuff too, but mm-hmm. for this audience, you know, that the Dead Georgians thing at the top of the page, you just click on that. It'll take you to a list of something like 40 posts about Georgia history, various aspects of it. Nothing much passed about the 1840s though. This one, Politics on the Periphery, and the whole point of that title, I picked it on purpose, was because it was describing a scene, uh, a political scene, a development of political parties that had borne no resemblance to the rest of the country. So it's out there on its own and developing the way it did. And this was 1986. I suppose probably you'd have to get, if you wanted to buy it, there might be some used copies available <laughs> through Amazon. That's a long time. And then in 18, or in 18, yeah, sure, 2015, this book, which has another great title. I love it. Uh, Rancorous Enmities and Blind Partialities. That <laughs> describes the political system. It's factions and parties in Georgia from 1807 to 1845. The, the first book that I showed you, this is uh, 17, what did I say? 1783 to 1806. So those two, you got, you know, you got the whole scope explained. Now, I did want to mention this one. And this is this is one that was published in the same year. I love that I have a thing for titles, man. <laughs> in pursuit of dead Georgians. Okay. Now these are this is really a collection of my essays, most of them published in journals, a few not that came from elsewhere. Mm-hmm. And they're a lot of them biographical. I talk about what my personal hero, the guy I I dug drug out of uh, the darkness. Nobody had ever heard of him. John Weariot, and I did, uh, I think, three articles on him, sort of a mini biography. He's an interesting guy. 
but he's in there. James Jackson, of course, another of my great titles. Oh, the Colossus, the Colossus, in quotation marks, with an exclamation point. That's what his enemies called him. He was a little guy. They said he was a little guy, but my God, he's big in politics, you know, that kind of thing. But yeah, let me, we'll, uh, we'll wrap it up. And sure. uh, thank you so much for being with us. Well, thank you for inviting me. I enjoyed it immensely, and I hope that this this is up for an Oscar. <laughs> it will Next be. Year. I'm, sure you I'm sure it will be, yeah. <laughs> but thanks, Glenn. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Then Again is a production of the Cottrell Digital Studio at the Northeast Georgia History Center. We greatly appreciate your reviews on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to Then Again. You can follow the Northeast Georgia History Center on Facebook and Instagram and check out our YouTube channel with hundreds of great programs. Thanks, y'all, and see you next week for another episode of Then Again.